you, Keith, for coming back on the show. Uh, you came on about two years ago, and I'm excited to have you actually as the first repeat guest on Pod of Jake. So great to have you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you again. Thank you. And uh, for those who you know missed that first episode, I, I encourage you to go back and listen. It was it was a really interesting one for me, one of my favorites to date for sure. And we basically spent an hour going through some of Keith's key principles. And I think um, you know, for those who don't know Keith so well. Uh, he's got some principles that I find to be, you know, they just really resonate with me from an operating perspective and in business and also just from a perspective and how to live on a personal level, um, time management and things like that. So what I'd like to do today and what I'm excited to do is to sort of take some of these principles and um, look at them in terms of the context of OpenStore, which is a company that Keith has started in the last couple of years uh, based in Miami, really interesting business. So I think Keith, if that's good with you, we'll... Uh, We'll make that sort of like the theme of the episode and uh, hopefully have some fun. Sure. Dive right in. Great. Um, so again, people who haven't listened to the first episode, I think you can go back and do that first. Honestly, it's like pretty timeless stuff and will probably be some context that uh, I don't go into from scratch on this episode. That would be useful to have coming in. So if you want to go do that, go do that. Uh, and we'll just dive right in here. So um, Keith, I think, correct me. I mean, you started the business, uh, around two years ago, something like that. And then you went like series A, series B, and another raise from Lux, like all in a matter of, you know, with months in between, I think it was July, 2021, you raised 30 million from Kosla. November, 2021, you raised 75 million from General Catalyst. September, 2022, 32 million from Lux, all at increasing valuations, despite, you know, the macro environment, especially with retail and things being a little bit, you know, some other companies in the space are having difficulty raising and all sorts of spaces, just VC is way down in general. How are you putting together this momentum despite, you know, adverse environment and everything like that? You're right. We started the company on March 17th of 2021, incorporated, launched uh, approximately September of 2021. So about 18 months in market, about two years old as an entity. Uh, we did raise money fairly frequently Part of that was opportunistic. It wasn't necessarily so strategic or intentional. There was people who were interested in what we were doing, the vision of what we were doing. They understood the differentiation for what other people were doing. E-commerce is particularly broken and stagnant at like roughly 12 to 14% of uh, retail. And we think we have a formula to unlock the next 50% of e-commerce in the United States. So that's obviously exciting to investors and employees, as well as hopefully to all Americans. The difficulty, obviously, of raising capital increased as the public markets corrected back to a more normalized environment as interest rates uh, were actually increased pretty substantially by action of the Fed. And so I think there was some benefit of high uh, of foresight, let's say, in predicting that inevitably inflation would drive interest rates up, which would drive tech valuations down. So that was part of the decision-making was understanding that things were likely to get worse from a VC private financing perspective over the next, call it 12 to 24 months. Uh, but it was still mostly reactive than proactive. Well, one of the things I've you know learned from you is sort of like the, the value in uh, matching your fundraising to various milestones and more specifically like determining what's the next biggest risk in the business. And, you know, that's the thing we're going to be trying to de-risk with this next chunk of capital. And so figuring out, you know, rather than just like a neutral, oh, we need 18 months or whatever it is for some arbitrary set of tasks. It's like, no, we're doing this exact thing. 
it's going to take this long. It's going to be, you know, it's going to cost this much. So, um, did this track, you know, despite sort of some of the external factors, did this track follow that in any way? Were there specific early milestones that you thought were most important in terms of big things to de-risk for open store that you sort of organized these around, or did you have to go sort of off playbook a little bit because of the environment? So on the principles basis, I completely agree with that view that really defining milestones against time is not a productive exercise. Like you often hear people talk about runway, I have 24 months of runway, I have 12 months of runway. And they think of that as some input or some deterministic uh, positive thing. And I actually think that's, that's a constraint. It's like driving your car. There's a certain amount of gas in your fuel. That's the constraint on how far you can drive, but you don't look at your gas tank and say, drive me somewhere. And so I always think in terms of milestones, inflection points, accomplishments, proof points around risk reduction, I would say we did deviate from that playbook a fair amount, uh, partially because of the opportunistic availability capital and the belief that the availability capital was going to significantly compress over some, you know, in some short period of time. So I didn't exactly adhere to that, but generally speaking across all companies I've been involved in, all companies I'm on the board of, all companies I've been an investor in, I think that's the better approach. Right. So um, let's maybe just introduce before we get too deep, uh, you know, what is open store and sort of a short and fundamental uh, description as you can give. And then um, going back to the fundraising piece, I'd be curious in this specific case, what some of those early things that you feel that, you know, the biggest risks that you feel the need to de-risk, what some of those things actually are for the open store business? Sure. So we think our mission is to reinvent e-commerce to allow for serendipitous discovery of uh, products in a way that bypasses or obviates the need to shop in the real world. So we have a design district in Miami that has a lot of great brands and about a mile and a half from where I live. I probably travel there uh, once a month, but it's a pain. I have to travel there once a month. Parking is inconvenient. The hours that the stores are open is very incompatible with my work schedule. So there's no inherent reason why the reasons I drive to the design district can't be substituted by an app, but nobody in the West has figured out the solution for serendipitous product discovery at scale. That's our goal. The way we actually do that in practice is based upon a couple key insights. One, Shopify over the last 12, 15 years is one of the you know sort of secret successes of technology right in the middle of Amazon's backyard. Shopify store owners and brand owners typically are excellent at storytelling about their brand. And that is what leads to serendipitous discovery. People often surf, uh, let's say Instagram and discover products that they didn't know they needed, but they're uh, excited about, enthused about, and they purchase them. So that's what we want to create is an Instagram to Shopify experience that allows people to be delighted with new ideas, new products, that they wouldn't have been uh, searching for on Google or Amazon. Right. So you, you mentioned that, you know, this hasn't been done in the West. Has it been done in the East? Well, I think in China, you can see some super apps, sort of commerce, commerce apps where they do surface products that are probably not driven by pure purchase intent. So I think there's a lot of dynamics that are different in China about shopping, uh, just even if nothing else, the retail environment may also be different. Like the legacy offline options may also be different, but nobody in the West has succeeded with this. Most of the horizontal platforms that are popular, let's say in the United States, 
were built in the late 90s and no one's really built a horizontally interesting platform across all price points or verticals uh, since the late 90s. So we're trying to accomplish that. The way we do that is we provide liquidity to small shop of small long tail, smaller long tail Shopify stores. Let's say $500,000 in GMV or sales to up to $10 million in GMV in sales. And we offer them you know, a price using data to buy their business. Or now a week ago, we launched a new product called Drive where we will guarantee them the cash flow from their business, but we'll actually run the business for them, which reduces their stress, allows them to focus on other things in their life, whether it's their family, their healthcare, or other initiatives. Yeah, so I definitely want to get into these acquisitions and also the new um, product that you guys have launched, Open Store Drive. Uh, basically, if I could sort of like regurgitate some of what you've just said, it's like you guys are buying some of these not like tiny, but not huge, uh, you know, stores on, on Shopify. They're between a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue to a few million dollars in revenue, something like that. And you're paying, I don't know, some somewhere around like 2x EBITDA. I think you have other metrics that you're actually using to inform the price, but that's sort of like, you know, retrospectively what you end up paying for these things. And then I think like right now you guys are just in like optimized mode, but eventually the vision is that you can create this, you know, uh, I don't know, if, like marketplace, the right word, but somewhere where people can go that's not in the physical world where they can rediscover some of the spontaneous and serendipitous discovery that is sort of currently missing in the e-commerce world. And it sounds like, and that's people, you know, that's your theory as to why people go still physical shopping, despite, you know, having to deal with traffic and off hours and whatever, like online is better in a lot of ways, but the one thing that it hasn't really been able to replicate or do better is the serendipity and the spontaneity and the inspiration and things like that, finding things that you didn't know to search for, basically. Um, is that a decent recap? Yeah, I think that's mostly accurate. We aspire to have a destination, both web and app, that allows, you can imagine a consumer in some ways having a decentralized department store. So just as if you would go to back in the day, like a Macy's, a generic you know, sort of department store, it would have apparel, it would have home fin furnishings, finishings. It would have some brands that have standalone pockets like Hugo Boss might have its own store within a store. And then there'd be a men's shirt section that collects a lot of different brands by size typically. So that, that metaphor definitely can apply uh, to online transactions. But I think we're going to uh, layer a new iOS app on top of the inventory and the products and SKUs that we represent and has a that has a slightly different value proposition that becomes a destination app in and of itself. Mm, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's some things that are sort of tangentially related today, but nothing exactly alike, maybe a little bit more in the East, but nothing in the Western world. And am I correct to sort of hear that you're you you think that basically e-commerce has maybe plateaued a bit because this this factor is sort of missing in the experience and there's a lot more you know potential basically for e-commerce to gain market share and retail overall. Well, I th yeah, I mean, I think the fact that e-commerce has been basically stagnant for a decade suggests that there's a real constraint, um, and I think you need usually when you hit a real constraint for a decade, there's a fundamental root cause or two that need to be addressed and reinvented. Right. Um, so, so far you guys have acquired, uh, I'm not sure actually how many I heard on a pretty recent podcast. I think it was like 40 or 50 at that time, but yet another 20 in diligence. 
How many acquisitions approximately have you guys made at this point of, of these Shopify stores? We've acquired in the 40s now stores. Um, that's the large that makes us the largest acquirer and brand operator in the world, I believe, um, of Shopify stores. And then secondarily, we now have another whole pool of businesses where the the merchant, the brand owner has decided to sign up for Drive. So we'll be adding a bunch of Drive merchants to um, sort of the open store family ASAP. Right. So maybe actually we should get into Drive a little bit earlier because it's it was sort of hard for me to parse from online, but it it may have actually sort of like altered the trajectory of the business uh, and maybe 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 not. I'm not I'm not sure, but is it something with, with open store drive basically rather than acquiring these businesses you're offering to the to the uh you know company owner the store owner that you will run their operations for a year you in advance of that year tell them exactly how much income you're going to be able to give them per month based on their statistics similarly to how you know you generate a, an acquisition offer instead you're you're generating you know how much income you can give them as a store owner per month they keep full ownership i think you guys charge 10% management fee basically and then at the end of the year they can either sell you the business which has been open stores you know business model to date or they can you know opt out of the whole thing or i think they can continue on actually with like the drive management system and they can go on vacation or do whatever they want quasi retire while you guys run their store and they continue to get majority of the income was that something that you guys had planned as like an upcoming product from day 1 or is that something that came out of some Thing that you observed in you know talking to these owners originally how did that come about in the first place yeah so drive was a manifestation of a few spontaneous conversations that i had had with some of my colleagues and kind of put some puzzle pieces together i mean from a top level perspective though what's obvious is not every brand owner wants to sell their store right away 70 percent of shopify brand owners do want to sell their store at some point but we want the largest collection of products. The products are really the supply that drives the inspired purchase. And so we wanted to accelerate our brand portfolio. And one really efficient way to do that was to use the same pricing model and just predict next year's cash as opposed to the future cash flows beyond one year. And then offer, you know, sort of the brand owner a no-brainer value proposition, which is you get all the same benefits, subtract a 10% fee. And you do none, none of the work. I mean, I wish someone would do that in venture. I would love to get off the same carry and, and you know, and pay 10% of it back and do no work. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a great deal for the store owner, which sort of begs the question of like, why does it make sense for you guys on, on the other side of the deal? Um, it's like a relatively small cut. You're not getting ownership of the business to eventually consolidate it up. Is it just the fact that you can sort of convert more easily to the ultimate acquisition with this intermediate step which may not in and of itself be quite as valuable to open store but overall should sort of be worthwhile well i think there's several uh, dimensions that are attractive to open store. one is we need a larger brand portfolio so if i'm running a decentralized department store i need enough products for you to buy and so if if let's say of the 70 percent of brand owners on shopify who want to sell at some point let's say only 20 percent want to sell now i may need more products than that and so it's a good solution to that. Secondly, people are a little bit more emotional, truthfully, about selling their business than um, just analyzing their own cash flows. And so it's a lot easier to convince them that our pricing model is accurate. They understand what their cash flows are. It's kind of a factual statement, projecting them next year. It's kind of non-controversial. 
But when you say, here's the value of your business, you get, it's kind of a more complicated conversation. So I think it just simplifies uh, closing um, brand owners. And then third is, I think that we wanted to test out some new ideas. And so the combination just made tons of sense. Yeah. And so I saw this is like fresh off. I don't know if you guys have had any early indications of how this is being picked up. I saw like one of the promo videos the other day, which was really nice. It's like you go from as a business owner, you go from like this phone with like all these notifications of all these problems at your business to like literally two notifications. Here's your passive income for the month. And here's yep. a reminder for your flight to Tahiti, which I thought was pretty yeah, clever. Exactly. Um, we, we wanted to make this like autopilot. So literally, we will drive your store for you. You don't do anything except get the rewards. Yeah. And so, you know, talking about sort of needing some um, like critical mass of brands and, and trying to get there very quickly. Um, I understand you guys are pursuing like a generalist approach, a horizontal approach, like any industry you don't care. You're not like starting with apparel or kitchenware or whatever it might be and like trying to, you know, um, I guess, uh, sort of build, build, build some, uh, inventory of, of various brands within, you know, a given vertical, you're just going all out and regard sort of, uh, vertical agnostic, basically, as you build this massive, you know, collection of brands, was there any thought that went into that? Like why you took that approach rather than something more like vertical by vertical, like such as, you know, Amazon pursued or, or something like that? Uh, two reasons. First of all, we wanted to mirror the breadth of Shopify. So our goal is to have like roughly the same distribution of products that Shopify has. So we have 43% apparel approximately. Shopify has about 40%. So we're on target with that. Uh, so I think if you're going to reinvent commerce, you need to have breadth and variety. Second, I generally believe that horizontal businesses are better than vertical businesses. Um, this is sort of moderately controversial. I think basically there's a fixed cost and pain in building a startup. And so you might as well amortize the same pain across the biggest possible vision. That makes sense. Basically, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt either way. So you might as well go big sort of thing. But yeah, I think there's, there's a few examples of people who started with tight verticals and expanded successfully. I think Facebook is the canonical example. But I think it's rarer than people realize. Usually just the first vertical is so damn hard that you lose energy and enthusiasm and time to conquer the other verticals. So you might as well start broad. Right. Um, so I, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the actual process that goes behind um, the part of the business, which may be like sort of more gradual now and in, in getting to an eventual acquisition, maybe drive becomes something that's, you know, an intermediate step for the vast majority of deals, maybe it's not, I'm not sure, but eventually there's going to be an acquisition. Uh, that's the goal at least. And, um, you guys are doing these, like, I think the initial goal was sort of after you got sort of a bunch under your belt was to get to a deal a week and then building the system in a way that could eventually scale to like a deal a day. And I think you guys are already at being able to make like a same day acquisition offer. And it's like, you know, super low friction for the user. There's like a quick three-step process. They can get an offer on their business in a day, similar to like what you're doing or what you've done at, at Open Door, you know, making offers on people's houses. Um, so it's all very quick. And, and not only is it like quick already, but I understand you've like thoughtfully designed processes in a way that they can get to like maximally quick. Like you can get an acquisition offer in an hour instead of a day and you can, you know, you guys, like I said, can do a deal every day instead of every week. 
how have you thought, like, can you, you know, I don't know which process you want to pick, but one of the more important processes to the business that sort of like makes or breaks it. And it would be great just to hear about like sort of how you designed that process from day one to be able to like as easily as possible. Obviously there's gonna be tons of challenges, but like make it feasible at least to scale these things or, or maybe not scale them, but like speed them up to the degree that most people would probably think is like not possible. Yeah. So we started work, uh, with the basic principle of working backwards. So if you know you want to create an automated system that allows you to price merchants in an hour um, and allows you to close merchants in you know, a matter of days, you want to design a process that has the potential to do that. If you start uh, by relaxing the constraints, you're never going to get there. So if you use a lot of humans to price a business, the economics aren't going to work and the scalability is not going to work. If you use a lot of diligence, you're never going to be able to close every day. And so once you know what your goal is, you do start factoring that in from day one. And even if you're not like pushing the envelope on day one, you have a vision of how you can push the envelope when you need to. So for example, we do, up, we do provide um, business owners an offer within one business day. We could tighten that if we wanted to. Um, we could handle easily 20 plus, you know, pricings a day. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of capabilities already, but we can mostly scale that. The goal now is to actually not just, uh, uh, not just get a accepted offer uh, per week. It's actually to, to implement, integrate one new business a week. So further down, kind of moving further down the funnel. Uh, so that that's the new goal. But if you know, you're going to want to one day implement, integrate, absorb a business a day, you'd want to design processes, software, human processes that allow you to get there. So you don't have to start from scratch. Yeah. So the, the funnel is roughly like the, the acquisition needs to be highly automated or not the acquisition, rather the, the acquisition offer, the, the pricing basically of the business needs to be highly automated. Then the sort of conversion to an actual, you know, converting the, the, the offer into an actual sale. And then there's a period of diligence that follows that. I think right now it was like, or at least last I heard, it was like a couple of weeks until the owner actually sort of like the, the deal is fully closed. They get all the cash. I think there's some upfront cash and then maybe 80% upfront, 20% later, something like that. But it's all within like a couple of weeks. And then you guys have to begin the actual difficult process of integrating the thing and implementing all of the optimizations that you guys are making and things like that. And is that last piece, that like sort of end of the funnel, part is probably the most challenging you would say, or, or all of it, you know, various pieces are challenging in their own way. So we, we, we do provide 80% of the cash on an acquisition upfront with a uh, 20% earned over a few weeks, you know, afterwards, uh, the, the, I wouldn't say any one piece is more challenging, certainly integrating, absorbing. When we first started that process, we learned a lot. So, you know, having never have actually there's probably nobody who'd ever done this before at any degree of volume. So we definitely had to learn like what do you need to do? What do you need to pay attention to? What goes wrong? I think now that we've absorbed a fair number of businesses over, you know, the last year, uh, hopefully we're pretty good at it. There's still we still learn new things. There's one business we absorbed this week that we still learn something new to pay attention to. So uh, you know, it never gets easy, easy, but I, I think you do clarify your sort of roadmap, your product roadmap, your process roadmap, your checklist. Uh, so I think we can price, we're getting better at diligence. Like I'm sure there's things that we should have caught in diligence in the first eight acquisitions we made. 
that hopefully we won't, you know, ever forget to ask, you know, certain kinds of questions again. And then there's things that have absorption that we've definitely learned along the way. So hopefully at the end of the process, you get to a fairly smooth plane ride where nothing goes wrong. And if there is, there's a checklist of, you know, what to do. Yeah. So I understand you guys have done sort of like, um, at least in analyzing the acquisitions today, you've looked at things in terms of like cohorts. I don't know, you know, what the duration is, or maybe it's not time, but number of companies, whatever it might be. I think you're like a few in at this point. And like the first one, I understand, like there's a lot of learnings. Second one was a bit better. Third one, even better. And now you're trying to like really hone in on like, okay, we've got enough of these to have like a really good sense of what we're looking for. Hopefully the low hanging fruit of problems, which were non-obvious up front, obviously, otherwise you would have like planned for them, but sort of were just, you know, hidden enough or unexpected enough. It's a bit of a new space, whatever. You sort of figure these things out as you go. Um, what's been like the key to actually learning quickly and iterating quickly between these various cohorts and just improving cohort over cohort and maybe like a specific example of a learning of from sort of one of the early, um, you know, bad acquisitions that has led to sort of not making the same mistake twice, things like that. Wasn't necessarily a bad acquisition. It was just learning that if you don't pay attention to all the details, there's always some corner case that goes wrong. You have to transfer Facebook account ownerships. There's a process entailing that's entailed with that. There's um, software transfer, a little bit easier, but you have to do a lot of software transfers. Um, one thing that is fairly unique to Shopify is Shopify has a broad ecosystem of plugins. And every brand we buy is its own custom. Uh, uh, selection of those plugins. It feels like a little bit like Android Wild West of like how the plugins integrate. So figuring out how all the user flows work is a non-trivial problem. I somewhat wish that Shopify was a little bit more like the App Store where there was more constraints and it was more obvious, but uh, you know what the permutations could be. We've got pretty proficient at it by now, but there's still corner cases that you've never seen before. Is there like a is is there any sort of power law to like what plugins or what Shopify services people are using or it's like just all over the place and very difficult to like you're not getting a ton there, of there are leverage. there is some, there are some power laws around let's say buy now pay it later services most people use a firm um, Clavio is a pretty popular choice return buys pretty popular choice but there's still a lot of plugins that are pretty unique and custom and so one of the things we do do when we absorb and integrate is we have a preferred, you know, let's say called tech stock for like a better term that we want to run the stores on. But uh, we want to make sure that as we transition to what we prefer, we don't break things that are converting well. Yeah. So one one of the um one of the interesting things we discussed uh, actually on on the last episode we did was um, previous businesses you've been able to find like anomalies in the data. Um, at a various company, whether whether it was like LinkedIn or Square, or whatever it might be, and they led to like pretty significant strategic decisions or or changes in the business. Is there anything? I know it's still like relatively early with Open Store, but is there anything that has been like sort of totally out of left field that you've seen um, that sort of informed a strategic change, or still just sort of following things and and nothing crazy has jumped out just yet? I think there are some opportunities that we've seized upon they're not always good ones uh you know like anomalies cut both ways um there's anomalies you learn that you don't like and you have to figure out what the root cause and driver is and address that and then occasionally there's anomalies that you can really amplify um i think one anomaly that's positive is i do think that 
the acquisition price, if you back into it the way you did about EBITDA, is probably lower. The market, you know, for long tail business just is significantly lower than maybe people thought. Um, that's not, again, how we drive our acquisition pricing. Uh, we're building a business and we value the business based upon what we think we can do with the business and how it would affect what we're building, not, you know, just using standard MBA tools. But um, so that was a yeah, sort of positive discovery in some ways. Negative discovery is uh, almost everybody in direct to consumer businesses in 2022 uh, has too much inventory or had too much inventory. And so there's just a surplus inventory in the market. If we're buying a business and they have too much inventory, we don't, we don't want to buy too much inventory either. So I think it's a problem that didn't really exist two years ago, but it's very acute. Everybody overestimated Q4 this year and bought too much inventory. So when we acquire a business, we want to buy the right amount of inventory. And we've got fairly proficient at predicting what that right amount of inventory is. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I know like Open Door, you know, the other business you co-founded was, you know, had to deal with sort of this unexpectedly fast, unexpectedly sharp rate hike, which, you know, killed a lot of growth in the economy and, and whatnot. And um, that, you know, of course, you model these things in, but you sort of probability weight various scenarios. And I don't think a lot of people two years ago had any, you know, reasonably high probability on what we've actually ended up seeing in reality. Is open store? Have you sort of had to take some of what you did with Open Door and and sort of try to project some macro elements similarly, just because of how much it affects all of these stores that you're acquiring? No, I don't believe that there's a massive macro driver underneath Open Store. Uh, as I put it out on CNBC recently, we have a mix of luxury goods and inferior goods. Meaning, inferior goods means that in uh, tough economic times like a recession people buy more because they're cost effective so we don't have just expensive goods or we don't have just inexpensive goods having a mix is very attractive if you're in a volatile volatile economic future so people may substitute into some of our brands when their budget goes less far and they may buy less of some of our other brands so i think a diversified portfolio is actually pretty positive uh, but I don't think we have a particular exposure to some macro environment. I mean, obviously, if the U.S. entered a true depression and consumers aren't spending on any like discretionary purchase, that clearly would not be great. I don't think there's any realistic likelihood of a true U.S. depression in, you know, in the next X months, even probably Y years. So I'm not particularly stressed about that. And by the way, that wouldn't be unique to us. If we're in a true depression, virtually every tech company has real fundamental problems. Yeah. I mean, you've got to take certain risks and just assume like round them down to zero so that you can yeah. do what you want I mean, to do. The interest, interest rate exposure on mortgages is obviously a fairly specific thing associated with residential real estate, which is you know, the price of mortgages has been artificially cheap. So the affordability of a home has been very high by any historical norm. And so clearly if interest rates go up and they go up very fast, people's ability to move into new homes under the new terms of a mortgage are, is going to be really constrained and people have therefore postponed new uh, home purchases. I, I choose postpone very intentionally. People do need to move like for new jobs, due to divorces, deaths, you know, bad things, or, you know, family expansion, good things. Like they have kids, they want larger space. You can only postpone and defer those uh, moves for some period of time. And then the new mortgage rate interest, you know, environment 
will cause people to transact. Open door is a transactional model. So the more people that buy and sell homes, the better the company is going to do. So as soon as that you know, normalization occurs and people recognize that interest rates aren't going all the way back down, then I think open door will thrive very well. The starkness of the interest rates did catch people off guard. Historically, if you modeled interest rate rises, they weren't quite as sharp. There are precedents and they're, high, they're definitely an open doors model. There's experiences, historical experiences with rising interest rates, but the, 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 the steepness of the interest rate rise definitely was pretty unprecedented, but eventually it reverts back to a pretty normalized, predictable environment and people will buy and sell, they'll call it 5 million homes instead of 4 million. And that's very good news for Open Door. Yeah, it's an interesting um, interesting perspective on, on the real estate market. I never just quite thought of it that way, that there's sort of like this base layer of like, there's maybe like a spectrum of need to move versus want to move and want at the far extreme is just like totally just you just want to move there's no particular reason it's totally selective or whatever and then the other side like yeah yeah there's a, there's a pretty tight band uh, if you analyze home purchases you know roughly speaking over 40 years you're talking the band is four billion at the low end and six billion at the high end per year yeah and so i guess that's sort of like the opportunistic layer maybe that fluctuates up and down and then the rest of it is just sort of like people have to move and they don't you know they can't afford yeah i mean I, I, if i was critiquing open door from afar with the, even without the benefits of hindsight the fixed one thing you want to do when you know the band ranges from four to six million is make sure your fixed costs are low enough that at four million they still make sense right um well we'll see how how all that goes you know we can maybe talk about open door a little bit another time, but I want to keep going on open store a little bit. And I I'm very, you know, uh, there's some good pieces on open door out there that I'd encourage people to go read. Um, I think recently actually, uh, I forget the CEO did an interview with someone I liked. I can't quite remember who it was, but maybe it was Stratechery or something, but, um, yeah, Stratechery is great in covering open door over the years. There's a couple, um, what I call amateur analysts on Twitter that are excellent in covering open door very accurately using data and rigor. So there's a lot of sources of information for people who want to do their own, you know, the proverbial own research on open door. Yeah. So a cool company, I encourage people to go check it out. Uh, Keith co-founded this a while ago and uh, you know, it's, it's an inter- it's obviously a huge opportunity. And so early execution, I think has been quite good. And, you know, now there's an obstacle in the market, but hopefully they pull through and, and it ends up being a super impressive uh, success story. I mean, the way Yuri Milder once said this to me is it's insane that in the West, the largest residential real estate company is like a $9.9 billion market cap. It makes no sense. Yeah, it's too big a market. Tr- trillion, trillions of dollars. And so one way or the other, someone, hopefully Open Door, is going to capture you know the $100 billion plus opportunity. Yeah, hopefully Open Door. So um, coming back to open store uh we talked one of the sort of things we we talked about last time as well was uh and i think you've talked about quite a bit just publicly is sort of the the importance of um not just like figuring out what your key metrics are but having counter metrics for all of those if you optimize too much for something no matter how fundamental that thing might be to the business if you're not paying attention to the counter metric then you know you could get in big trouble like for example if you if your metric is like speed of hiring or something then the counter metric might be the quality bar and if you might be fire, you know hiring faster than anyone else in business but if you're lowering the quality bar as a result then that's not gonna end very well 
Um, one that I can sort of imagine from afar for open store, like one example of this trade-off would be the acquisition offers. Like obviously you guys have some system of coming up with these offers. It's highly automated. You're doing it within a day, maybe eventually within an hour. Um, and there's going to be like some fair value and then some sort of range around that where you could theoretically, you know, increase the value and probably convert more sales and decrease the value. And that number goes down. Is there like a, um, have you, is that one of the things that you're thinking about? Like, should we be, you know, we want to acquire businesses faster. Should we, can we afford a little bit more in the acquisition offers here? Or, um, we're actually getting like a higher rate on yeses than we sort of expected. And we're still working on these processes. So maybe we should actually be more aggressive on price. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think you're always tuning your pricing against some accept rate, let's say. And what you're trying to dial in is uh, the marginal impact of price against conversion, which is basically a price elasticity, right, curve. And then secondly, more subtly, is at some levels of pricing, you either get positive selection bias or negative uh, selection bias. And that's a much more complicated methodology to, to derive and apply. So it's a very nuanced set of measures that you're trying to optimize. Can you elaborate a bit? I'm not sure I understand the positive negative selection sure. bias thing. So let's say let's say the price was very low. Presumably the people who are more likely to take that are have less exciting businesses. Because the people who know they have a great business may let's say let's say you offer people half in, uh, you know 50 half of an EBITDA, or like, you know, less than one, uh, 50 basis points, EBITDA, whatever, however you express that. Sure. I suspect you won at that level of pricing, you wind up with massive adverse selection. Right. You're going to get these businesses saying yes, that like sort of, that they probably, probably know realize they're not going to do that well. Right. So this, there's a fine line in, in pricing of making sure that the pricing works for us, absolutely needs to. So we have a model of what we think an appropriate payback and customer acquisition cost is, and we apply that and we try to project it. And then B, you need to understand the other side of the equation. There's an equilibrium on the brand owners. At some pricing, you know, some prices they're thrilled and a huge fraction says yes. And in fact, if your accept rate does drift upwards and it has a, at different points in time, then you do wonder if you know somehow or another you're overpaying. So that's definitely an input. But then on the flip side, if you're too strict and too disciplined, you could accidentally walk into some adverse selection and the quality of the businesses may not be as good as you thought they were on a whole, on average across the population. Right. So obviously, you know, you guys are going out and buying all these businesses. There's some thesis around like you're not, you wouldn't just accumulate all these businesses and run them the way that they've been run to date. You mentioned earlier, like, you sort of have your ideal tech stack that you try to implement um, in terms of, I think it was like the the, the various vendors on, on Shopify and things like that. You sort of, you know, you, you might not break everything in a business just to get it on your sort of model, but if you can sort of tweak things here and there to get it closer, that might be good. Um, I heard you talk previously on another podcast about like one concept that was pretty interesting, which was the ability to match long tail influencers on like Instagram to long tail skews in the various brands that you're working with and sort of create, you know, like sort of, I guess, make like a more liquid market for affiliate deals, maybe is like one way to think about that. Yeah. Um, so we have a product live that already does that called uh, Gumdrop, where influencers, micro influencers, you know, non 
people with like call it like some some hundred thousand followers or something on various social platforms can select products that they think would resonate with their brand that they can promote to their audience and get paid for. So I welcome any influencer who's listening. They can go sign up right now and decide what products you know fit their style, and we're happy to work with them. Also, any Shopify store owner, go get an acquisition offer. I just have to add that. Oh, yeah, of course. If, you, well. if you're selling between 500K and $10 million, primarily targeting the United States, we'd love to work with you. Great. So we've gotten those out of the way. Hopefully people will go and, and get their offers. And if yeah, I, I won't be too much on the commercial, but yeah, <laughs> we, can, we can make your life easy. We found that brand owners who sell to us reduce stress in their life by 80% overnight. It sounds, and also the drive product sounds really intriguing as well, uh, which is brand new, I think, like last couple of weeks. It's brand new. We launched it last week. We've seen um, already a couple of examples of why it's attractive. So uh, we have a brand owner who lives in France and targets the US market. So he has to work all these crazy hours to keep up with the consumer base. That eventually gets tiring. So we can solve that for him. Number two, unfortunately, we have a brand owner who has healthcare, you know, personal healthcare issues. And it's really hard to run a business 24-7 and you know get appropriate treatment, rest, all that stuff. So we can help solve that. So we're we're solving real you know problems that normal people have when they're trying to run a business. And then there's some people who want to invest in a different type of business. They want to start a different kind of business. It might be a real world business like a restaurant or a bar, or might be a different Shopify store. They're passionate about something new. And so we can allow them to concentrate on a new initiative, a new store, a new brand, new product without losing the cash flow that they've, they've built their lives on. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I suspect it's going to get a lot of demand. Just what you're saying, you know, what you're saying seems to it resonates as being, you know, I, I can imagine it being very true. A lot of people are very attached. They don't want to like sell their business as quickly as you can get them an offer. They're not so quickly necessarily every time ready to just sort of turn the page, but they're probably very willing to let the thing go on autopilot and give you guys the, you know, control to go and, and optimize some things and a very small fee. They can just relax. So it seems super intriguing. I think it'll do um, really well, you know, going back to the influencers, um, the uh, gumdrop, I think you said it was called. Are there other, like that's an example of something I think that would be very difficult, if not impossible for like an individual, I mean, not impossible, but it would be very challenging, I think, for like an individual brand to like go and like source these influence, like these long tail influencers and pair them with their various products. Like it would be a lot, a lot of work. But if you guys have all of these brands and like build like a network of influencers, it's just like a much more liquid marketplace. And seems to make sense. Are there other things that are sort of top of list for open store that you've sort of um, identified, you know, beyond this with the influencers beyond like the tech stack, things that you guys have identified that it's just like, okay, if we can actually build this, you know, collection of brands, we will be able to crush this, you know, various thing, like whatever the thing might be that they just could not do as an individual brand. Yeah, there's actually many instant many instances or instantiations of that. So for example, let's take a really trivial one, very mundane, but you know, quite important one, shipping costs. Uh, basically, you know, the more packages you ship, the lower the marginal cost to ship packages are. Amazon is not paying the same that I pay either send to FedEx or, you know, or UPS or whatever. And so the more scale we have, the lower our marginal cost of shipping is compared to a very small business. And that either means lower prices to the consumer or more profit and faster payback to us or both. 
that's a great example it is it is a bit mundane i guess but like that seems incredibly important that's like a very large piece of the cost for selling a given product are there others that come to mind beyond shipping yeah i mean they're, they're all over everywhere you look there's you know disadvantages so, so let's say in marketing customer acquisition most of the businesses we work with or even consider working with have not raised external capital and there's an efficient amount of money to spend on paid acquisition let's say instagram some people just don't have the proper amount of cash in their bank account, right? If you, you have to wait, if you have to wait constantly for the last sale to reinvest on Facebook, you may be underinvesting in customer acquisition. We obviously can figure out, you know, an economic model of what the appropriate amount of money to spend, just like any startup does. You know, every startup has to run some algorithm of what payback time do they want on their customer acquisition expense against their margin, and then you know comes up with the right answer. We are not like cash constrained, but normal entrepreneurs are absolutely, you know, balance sheet constrained by what's in their bank account. Yeah. So um, that makes sense. And I think like this is basically the, it sounds like kind of the, the core of the business is the, the reason, the, because there are so many opportunities in this realm, that's why you guys sort of have the strategy that you do and you're going to be able to build this large collection of brands and then apply all of these optimizations across all these different areas and uh, hopefully make everything uh, a lot more profitable and, you know, will maybe grow a lot faster before you turn on the profitability, profitability stuff and, and whatever. Um, but it's very interesting. So I want to spend like, I think we've got like 10 minutes left. Um, I want to spend some time on actually sort of like more internally uh, talking about like the team and the culture that you've built at open store. You've obviously, you know, these are things that are sort of probably uh, more transferable across businesses and and you've, you know, helped lead a lot of them and you know advised a hell of a lot more and all like extremely successful companies we talked about last time um i'd like to talk specifically about like talent and culture so starting with talent um you guys have grown the team like we talked about you know the raising very fast and everything but the team i understand has also grown exceptionally quickly i think it's like mostly miami-based hires most everyone works in person i think it would be great if you could sort of talk about that a little bit and why, you know, how and why you're growing so quickly. And, you know, I, I know you're a big believer in like discovering undiscovered talent and um, just curious how you went about hiring here. You've done it so many times before, what you've learned from previous experiences that you've applied here, maybe in a different way than you have previously. Sure. So, yeah, we are a Miami-based company with approximately 125 employees and we do work fully in person. Um, and that's the norm in Miami Um uh, any, any startup really should be operating that way. Uh, but what is, and I wouldn't say, you know, we're unique on any of those dimensions. We're, we're down the middle of like successful companies, I think, and how you build companies is you work in person, you have a, you try to marshal a critical density of talent and you put them all in the same room if you can, and you allow kind of sparks to fly, cross pollinization of ideas, you allow, you watch and you watch and observe and figure out who's really producing value and you ask, you know, sort of uh, accelerate their career and give them stronger and more challenging opportunities constantly. That's basically the formula of company building, you know, in 20 seconds. Uh, it's surprising, you know, some people deviated from it. Those deviations are not going to work out so well, but uh, that's what we ascribe to do. Uh, we do hire people that we hope are undiscovered talent. We have a mix of experiences. Probably the median age feels like it's about 27 or 28. I haven't exactly surveyed it, but plus or minus, that's going to be accurate. 
Uh, and so in that median age, you're going to get some people with five to 10, 15 years experience, and you're going to get some people who are you know, dropouts. And the art is, of course, finding people whose talent is not yet appreciated by the rest of the world who have incredible potential. Uh, we have several illustrations of that. Uh, one of the two more influential people in the company was hired as a very junior analyst, probably the most junior role in the company two years ago, and is now running at least half the company. Uh, so you want to find people like that as much as you can. That's the best way to build a startup. Uh, it's not easy. Um, assessing is not, uh, well, surfacing candidates that have you know different profiles, not easy. Assessing them, you know, mentoring them, all of these are challenges. But when it works, uh, these are what yield like, you know, iconic companies, these strategies. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up like the junior analyst who is now running like half of the company. Can you sort of connect point A to B? Like, how do you actually, I take it this is one of those guys that you or girls that you sort of talk about, like when you talk about barrels and ammo, um, this guy's or girl is probably a barrel of some sort, like just really just getting everything done. And you sort of keep stretching and stretching and seeing where he's going to break or she's going to break and they never do. Um, how do you actually sort of, it's one thing to like find a really impressive person, but it's another to actually sort of, um, be able to like, a recognize that extremely quickly. And at each step realize that you sort of haven't broken them and that they can keep going and then actually sort of like giving them, or you just, obviously they sort of take some of it, the responsibility upon themselves, but you have to sort of give a little bit of like room for them to continue to push from the most junior person in the company to almost running the company in a couple of years. How does that journey, like what do you do as CEO to help facilitate that journey? Or what do you sort of put in the culture that enables that journey? Just any sort of details you could talk about with that. Yeah. So obviously there's multiple dimensions, but one is just challenging people, giving them more rope and watching. You're basically looking at a slope. You're trying to plot a, you know, X and Y intercept point. And most people, virtually everybody has some, you know, flattening of that slope at some point, but you hope you just want to keep pushing and giving more important, more challenging, more complex issues to solve until you see the slope flattening. And then that's where, you know, the person pretty much is going to land for a while and be successful. And you don't want to overdo it. Like if you jump too far ahead of that curve, the person will suffocate and you never really will find, you know, their true potential. So as long as you keep seeing the person succeed and thrive and embrace the new latest challenge, you want to just keep expanding the scope, expanding the scope. There's like, you know, you learn like little warning signs to look for when someone's starting to slow down. But as long as you don't see those, you want to constantly uh, expand the scope and then figure out who to pair them with where they, they, you're always learning new things. CEOs, for example, are, are the best examples of this. Any CEO of a startup who's never built a company before is always learning something new. First, they're learning how to run a 10-person company, then a 30-person company, then a 50-person company, then a 500-person company. That's always new. There's always new things, new challenges that they have to learn. And the way they learn that is they get, they find mentors, they find board members who can help them uh, you know, grow muscles um, and so you want to help pair these people with people they can learn from so they can absorb as much as possible from the mistakes of others as well. Really interesting. Uh, thanks for for the deep dive on that. So last question here. I know we're coming up on time. Um, you, are, you know, in addition to being co-founder and CEO here, you're also obviously investing, you know, basically full time with Founders Fund. Um, I understand you're a dad now. You've, you're doing like Barry's classes and staying in really good shape. It's a, it's quite a calendar. Um, and I know you're like a big believer in just focusing on 
the absolute highest leverage activities at all times and in, in all aspects of life, basically, but especially running the company. What are like the key things that, you know, you're spending the most time out of the time that you can allocate to open store? What are the things that you're spending your time on as CEO? There's really a, a handful and it's really narrow. One, the constellation of people, basically, as Jack Dorsey would describe it, editing the team are the right people in the right places and not mapping that to the biggest challenges for the company, the biggest upside and potential asymmetric downsides. Do you have the best possible people against the most important challenges and constantly thinking about that, shuffling that, upgrading that, changing that, giving new people opportunities, et cetera. That's by far the most important responsibility to see you. Second, for me, I find problem solving. So some part of the company or the company as a whole is running into some wall and the wall's kind of persistently annoying and trying to figure out a solution. Um, and that you know, is enjoyable and challenging and rewarding for everybody when it works. And then third, there's some degree of strategy, which is mostly a sequencing prioritization exercise, clarity, clarity and simplification. Um, all of that I'd put in one bundle and that helps other people thrive because you've taken a lot of the cognitive over overload and trade-offs off their plates so they can just execute without having to overthink and reverse engineer from scratch. Awesome. Well, uh, I know we're up on time, but Keith, it was a pleasure as always. Can't wait for people to hear this episode. Hopefully they go back and listen to the last one if they didn't already. Uh, for people listening again, if you have a Shopify store, Go to uh, open.store, get your acquisition offer, learn more about Drive. If you're an influencer, go learn about Gumdrop. If you want to just follow Keith, he's on Twitter at R-A-B-O-I-S. Uh, thanks, Keith. Appreciate the time and uh, hope to talk soon. Pleasure. Pleasure.